This is Steve Becker. I am a former district court judge in Reno County, Kansas. I served the bench for 26 years. Uh, following my retirement, I was elected to the Kansas legislature and served three terms. I'm Beth White. I spent almost a decade in the criminal justice system, specifically working with parole and parolees. And this is Cleared. Good evening, Dad. Hey, Beth. How are my grandchildren? They're crazy. Well and happy. Yes. And, and crazy. crazy. And crazy. Yes. And crazy. Yes. It was spring break, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Last they, week uh, was spring break. Again. You got to spend a few more hours with them. Yes. 24 hours, <laughs> to be exact. But nobody's counting. Over and over. Yes. 24 hours. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, they make me so happy. Oh, they love their papa. Well, I know you have a uh, interesting case you want to profile, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, as we usually do, I want to begin with um, a little bit of news on exonerations. And one of them is, uh, well, <laughs> both of them uh, are interesting Earlier this month, Ronaldo Munoz uh, was exonerated. He was uh, convicted of murder in Chicago as a teenager. He served 30 years in prison, and this month was exonerated. What makes it newsworthy? Well, an exoneration alone makes it newsworthy. Oh, it's newsworthy, yes. Absolutely. But his case is now the 3,000th exoneration since 1989, wow. according to the National Registry of Exonerations. So, again, we always face the challenge that um, society doesn't understand Society doesn't accept how frequent this is. This occurs, uh, so they started keeping track of exonerations in 1989 because that's when the DNA exonerate exoneration started, and we have now reached the 3,000 3, exonerations in the United States. Um, the reason for Mr. Munoz's exoneration was corrupt policing. It was so common in the 80s in Chicago that it became known as the U.S. capital for wrongful convictions and false confessions. Where was that? Chicago. Oh, wow. 
Chicago in the 1980s. Hmm. Okay, so uh, false confessions lead me to the second case I want to briefly mention, and I'm going to step outside our box a little bit uh, to talk about this case because this is not an exoneration. But very briefly, I would like to introduce you to Melissa Lucio. She is serving a prison sentence. Melissa Lucio is 53 years old and a mother of 14. In 2007, she was convicted of killing her two-year-old daughter, and she was sentenced to death. She is scheduled for execution next month, April 27. So when you listen to this episode, there is less than a month before her execution. There has been an overwhelming uh, groundswell of support for Melissa and evidence of her innocence. primarily a coercive uh, interrogation. Uh, After the death of her two-year-old daughter, it was just a few hours uh, when Melissa was arrested. She was held for several hours in custody before interrogation. Interrogation lasted five hours And this is a woman who had just suffered a uh, tragic loss of a two-year-old daughter. They interrogated her for five hours. And at 3 a.m. in the morning, she made a statement, I guess I did it. And then the interrogation stopped. Investigation of the case stopped. Um... They went to trial and used that statement as her confession. Um, There was no forensic evidence. There were no eyewitness testimony. And uh, at trial, she was denied presenting her primary defense. And her defense was that she had grown up in an abusive household She got married at age 16 to an abusive husband, um, and that marriage produced four children. The husband then left. She remarried, yes, to another abusive uh, husband. Uh, Like I said earlier, she currently has uh, 14 children. She has 14 children? She has 14 children. Oh, wow. Yeah, but the defense was psychological. They had experts lined up to testify that due to this life of abuse, she was prone to making false confessions when coerced. Um, and that was, that was how they were going to counter this statement, I guess I did it. Or even just, hey, I lost my two-year-old little baby girl. Obviously, maybe I have some mental issues going on right now. I think that should counteract it to begin with. The judge did not let them present that defense. The judge determined it was not relevant to the case. Uh, But anyway, there has been this 
groundswell of support for her. Um, through an appeals process, there have been 10 federal judges that at the minimum says she is entitled to a new trial, and uh, some of them has, have expressed uh, outrage. So it's not just uh, innocence projects and uh, friends and family and supporters. Federal judges have looked at this case and indicated she needs a new trial. The U.S. Supreme Court has denied review of the case. Um, so less than a month from when you're listening to this broadcast, uh, Texas is going to kill her. And again, we're not asserting guilt or innocence. We're asking you to go, maybe if that's something that interests you to do your own research, you can go to innocenceproject.org. Uh, you don't even need to click. It'll probably be the first page that pops up. It'll be all the information about her case, all the statistics, all of the news links to all the numerous media articles. There will also be a page there where if you read that information, you decide maybe the execution shouldn't happen. There'll be a petition you could sign to stop the execution. Um, in other ways, you can s show support for Melissa during this process. That petition, Beth, currently has 100,000 signatures. Um, and that petition is asking the Texas governor to intervene and uh, stop the uh, scheduled execution. Uh, you can also go to YouTube and search the state of Texas versus Melissa, and you will find a, uh, I think it's an hour and a half documentary that was done by a filmmaker um, in support of, uh, in support of Melissa. So yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to get Melissa on your radar. Um, read about it, get some more information if you have interest in it. Um, and stay tuned, and we will see. And if it is something you're interested in, and it's something that speaks to you, do something about it. Sign that petition, share the information with somebody else so they can learn about it too. A footnote to this story is the prosecutor that prosecuted Melissa Lucille is currently serving a federal 13-year sentence. What? <laughs> yes. The prosecutor is in prison, a 13-year sentence for bribery and extortion. Apparently, he was giving favor to certain uh, criminal cases uh, in exchange for support for his re-election. By the way, he was seeking re-election. It was campaign season for him. Um, during Melissa's trial? During Melissa's trial. So, anyway, yeah, that introduces you to Melissa. And uh, please, if that sparked any interest, uh, please learn more about it. Um, in preparing for this episode, I confess I got somewhat confused between Melissa's case and the case that Beth is about to profile. You will see some... Uh, some similarities there. So, yes, you will. Beth, Re talk real, to us. real quick before we get into that, I just okay. want to mention one other thing about exonerations in the news. 
Uh, if you are a true crime lover, true crime podcast lover, chances are you've probably heard of the podcast uh, Crime Junkie. It is one of them that I tend to listen to regularly, and I was listening to it last week as part of the many that I do weekly. And they did an episode on Juan Riviera, which is the suspect of a brutal rape and murder of a beautiful 11-year-old girl who was convicted and later exonerated. So they talked about that on the podcast, exoneree on that podcast. So I thought that was cool that exonerations were mainstream true crime podcasts. Just another way it got brought up. So I'm so glad it's getting out there. Yes, me too. Um, as Dad said, the case that we were talking about with Melissa is very similar to the one I'm going to be talking about. The woman that I'm going to be talking about is Rosa Jimenez. Rosa was born in Mexico, a small little rural city outside of Mexico City. She had a large family. She was number three of six kids. Um, some of the research I saw said maybe she had eight kids. She was raised by a single mom. Her mom pushed a tamale cart in order to provide for her children. So as you can imagine, things were tough for Rosa and her family. She did well in school, and even when she was asked in school by her teachers, what do you want to do when you grow up? Her answer was always, I want to be a mom. I want to have a big family, and I want to be a mom. That's what she wanted to do. When she got older, she graduated and started college in Mexico and going into business administration. She wanted to do something to help her mom provide for her siblings. One day she came home and she went to the fridge to get something to eat out of it and she noticed there wasn't any food in it and her mom saw her do this. Her mom asked her if she was hungry and she lied and said, no, I, I, I just need a drink of water, just something to drink. So after that day, she made the decision that so many others have um, that she was going to drop out of school and make the trek from Mexico to the United States. And she did so illegally. Uh, she entered the United States when she was 17. She ultimately settled in Austin, Texas, and very quickly found a community of people that she fit in with. She did not speak English at the time, but she did meet her husband. She got married and very shortly after she was pregnant with her first daughter, Brenda. She talks about how when she found out she was pregnant with Brenda, it was the greatest moment of her life. She was so happy. All of her dreams were coming true. She was going to be a mom. When Brenda came out, she had this full head of hair. She was beautiful. Brenda enjoyed dressing her up, doing her hair, taking her to parks every day. They were inseparable, her and Brenda. So much so that Rosa didn't want to leave Brenda to work, and so she found a solution. She started babysitting for the families in that community she had found, and that worked. She babysat for one family in particular, the Victoria Gutierrez, had an almost two-year-old little boy named Brian, and she had been babysitting Brian for about seven months before the incident happened. By all accounts from everybody involved with both Rosa and Brian, not only did Brian love Rosa, Rosa loved Brian. She treated Brian like he was one of her own. Um, some of the witnesses at her trial said that when Rosa would walk in and Brian saw her, his eyes just lit up and he needed a hug from her. On January 30th of 2003, she was babysitting baby Brian and her daughter Brenda. The Victoria, Brian's mom, had just dropped off Brian, and Brian and Brenda were laying down napping. They got up, she made him some cereal, and they went back and played. 
She noted that both Brian and Brenda kind of had little colds at the time. And anyone out there who has kids or who has been around kids, their nose is always running or sniffling. So she had a roll of paper towels out and was constantly wiping their nose and didn't think much of it when she threw the roll of paper towels on uh, the couch. At one point, the kids came back to her after she threw the paper towels on the couch with, you guessed it, a whole bunch of paper towel confetti and was throwing it all around. Uh, She told him not to do that, and they went back to the room and started playing. Brian had told her that he was hungry again, so she started to make lunch for them. Just a few short minutes later, Brian came back grasping his throat, and it was really clear to Rosa that obviously he was choking on something. Fortunately, or unfortunately, Brenda had some sort of a similar incident happen a short time before, so she was familiar with the uh, finger-mouth swipe technique that you do for infants and babies when they're choking. So she tried that and it didn't work. She did not have a cell phone or a phone in the house at the time. So after that method didn't work, she went to the neighbor's house where they called 911. The first responder there was a police officer who did not know how to perform CPR on a child. And so they had to wait for EMS to get there. EMS arrived. They performed CPR until they realized there was a blockage. They grabbed forceps and removed the blockage. Once they removed the blockage, they discovered it was a wadded up bloody ball of paper towels. Brian was taken to the Children's Hospital of Austin where he was placed on a ventilator. He stayed there for a few months, but due to complications, due to lack of oxygen and the brain damage, he died just three months later. Until they pulled out the wadded paper towels, the first responders all assumed it was just a normal, routine, baby swallowed something, choking, we need to get it out. It's at the point where they pulled out the wad of paper towels that they believed there was something more sinister going on. Unfortunately, nobody documented the size of the paper towels when they pulled it out, because obviously it's wedged in poor baby Brian's throat, um, so it's wet. They documented the size of it after it had dried out, so you would assume once paper towels dry, they probably expand a little bit. And the size that's noted is maybe the size of an egg or a racquetball, so something fairly big. Their paramedics were immediately under the belief, as were the officers on scene, that there is no way a baby would have swallowed something that big. So they took Rosa into custody. Uh, They took her to the station to interview her, to question her. Now keep in mind, Rosa's just been in the U.S. for a few years, She's undocumented, she doesn't speak English, and she has no idea of her rights. So already it's just a storm of bad things to happen. They interview Rosa, and they're trying to get out of her. You were mad because they were playing with the paper towels. And she says, no, absolutely not. It was just a few pieces of paper on the ground. Why would I be like that? This whole time they're questioning her, they're questioning her with a air quote bilingual investigator who turns out to not be so much of a bilingual investigator. So there's a communication loss between them as well. At one point, they tell her that they have taken her daughter, the love of her life, her first baby girl into CPS custody. Now, Brenda is from Mexico. She said her first thought was of the Mexican police. And sometimes she's heard stories where they will take the children of suspects into custody and kind of hold them ransom. And that's the first thought that was happening. And she said, at that point, I knew I was going to do anything to get my baby girl back. And that's what she told them. I will tell you whatever you need to hear. Just give me my baby girl. So that's what they did. 
Keep in mind, Brenda is about a year old at this point. And unfortunately, there is audio of this available online, which I highly suggest not to listen to. They bring baby Brenda in, who isn't even weaned yet, is still breastfeeding. And Brenda is just hysterically crying for her mom. And Rosa is just sobbing for the baby. She's in there with a CPS worker. They show her Brenda for a few minutes before they take her out and she leaves. And again, the interrogators start in again. Okay, you said you were going to tell us what really happened, what really happened. Well, she continues with the story, saying at most, at most, the kids were maybe alone for 10 minutes. She has no idea what happened. Obviously, they probably swallowed something that I mean, she didn't do it. She wasn't angry. She wasn't mad. That's all. Uh, due to her lack of confessing to forcing the paper towels down baby Brian's throat, which is what they believed to have happened, they let her go. She went home um, only for them to show up at her residence at 11 p.m. that night and arrest her. Little did Rosa know that short little exchange she had with Brenda in the interrogation room was the last time she would see Brenda for the next two years. Rosa was arrested, and I did not mention Rosa was also seven months pregnant with her second child at this point. She was arrested and taken to the Travis County Correctional Complex. Now, the news of her arrest was already a big deal, as it is a lot of times when it comes to females being charged with crimes against children. So when she arrived at the complex, she notes that the women were at the doors yelling and screaming and beating on the doors, yelling at her. And she didn't speak English, so she didn't know what they said, but she knew it was nothing good. And she was really a fear for her life. She was fortunate enough to find one woman there that was sympathetic to her or understanding and at least talked to her and kind of showed her the ropes and showed her what to do and kind of helped her at that time. Because she's alone and she's seven months pregnant in a country she doesn't know, not speaking the language. I, I can't even begin. I mean, the times that I've been pregnant, seven months alone, I'm terrified and I have Google and all the books available to me. So I can't imagine being incarcerated. During that time, um, since she did develop that friendship with that woman, all the other women started to come around and listen to her story. And unfortunately, being pregnant and delivering while incarcerated is not a rarity. So she was told what to expect from the other women who had had children while incarcerated. They told her that you will go to the hospital for three days, you will get to have access to your baby, and then after that, you'll get to have supervised access with the baby at the nursery. So that's what she was expecting. Closer to her trial date and closer to her delivery date, she was transferred from the correctional facility back to the Travis County Jail. Now, this is obviously a much smaller facility, and it kind of sounds like maybe she was the only one in there. She didn't have a cellmate. There wasn't anybody on either side of her, so she was just alone. She was alone. She was eight months pregnant. She was scared. Uh, the only thing that was in her room was a Spanish Bible, which she would read, and at that point, she decided to name her son Emmanuel, which is God is with us because she needed that reminder. So the time comes, she delivers her baby. She's in the hospital due to her charges, her pending charges involving the harm of children. She's not allowed to see her son. They allow her five minutes a day, five minutes each day that she's there to see her son. And it kind of sounds like those five minutes were kind of done. So not necessarily on the up and up. Like it wasn't allotted to her, whereas it was a nurse that felt sorry and allowed her to see her son. So her, again, this is her only passion in life is to be a mother. 
she's robbed of her daughter and then the birth of her son. She's got to see him all of 15 minutes his entire life so far. So she has her son. She sees him for that short period of time. And then she's transferred back to the correctional facility. The trial begins in 2005. Uh, The evidence the prosecution presents is expert air quote witnesses, none of which who are certified or trained in pediatric airways, all of which state there is no physical way possible for little baby Brian to have swallowed the paper towels. Now, this was quite some time ago. They did determine that the paper towels were five paper towels wadded up together. Um, Her appellate attorney was able to do some research because because when I think five paper towels, that would be huge, but apparently the sizes were smaller 20 years ago than they are today. Um, but nonetheless, all of the witnesses for the prosecution said that there was no way possible that the baby would have swallowed them on their own. And it had to have been Rosa that shoved them down the baby's throat out of anger. Uh, the defense due to funding issues, as we talked about before, was only able to provide for one expert witness, air quotes, again, expert witness. And unfortunately, he ended up doing more damage during the trial than good. His demeanor and decor were off. And at one point, he got in a verbal altercation with the prosecutor telling him he could go F himself. Um, One of the judges that reviewed her case afterwards described the defense's expert witness as doing more damage than if she wouldn't have just called anybody. So that kind of puts into play how much worth his testimony was. Um, Rosa's attorney presented all the family of hers, all of her friends, all of the other mothers and children that she watched, all of which testified that they had never seen her get angry. They had never seen her become violent, how she was always loving and caring. She had no criminal history. She had no history of abuse. The baby had no signs of abuse. There is just nothing out there to indicate that she would ever act in a violent manner. Despite all of this, she was convicted and she was ordered to 99 years in prison. She wasn't only ordered to 99 years in prison, Due to the nature of her crime, she wasn't allowed any contact with any minors, including her own children. So that means that poor Rosa can't see, well, I guess they did have some visitation through a a plexiglass window, but she wasn't able to hug her kids at all for, well, until her daughter turned 18 was the next time she was able to have physical contact with her daughter. She talks about how once a year at the facility where she was located at the maximum facility, she was located. They would do a mother's day for the women there that had children where their children would come in and they would bring in inflatables and that way, allowing the moms to create these ex- positive experiences with the children. Uh, during those times she was put in lockdown because she had a conviction involving harm to a child. As I mentioned, um, Rosa wasn't able to have physical contact with her kids until Brenda turned 18. Now, keep in mind, she was arrested when Brenda was one. Rosa was nursing Brenda when she was arrested. The next time she physically saw her daughter was when she was 18 years old. Let that sink in. As a mom, that that just, that tears me up. And she said that she really wishes she could say that was, this was just this beautiful, positive experience 
But in all honesty, she said, we're two strangers sitting here staring at each other. If we were passing each other on the street, we wouldn't have even known each other. We have no bonds formed. We weren't allowed to form that. After she was convicted, uh, Emmanuel and Brenda, her son and daughter, were sent to live with her mom in Mexico for a short time before placed in foster care which the foster care system actually ended up working out a little better for them because the foster care family was in Texas. So for a while, they had monthly, bi-monthly visits where the kids would come see her behind a plexiglass window for a while, and then they kind of lost contact because, as you can imagine, it's pretty traumatic for kids to go see their parents incarcerated. The foster family actually ended up renaming Emmanuel Aiden, which is what he goes by, Rosa talks about how difficult the process this is for Brenda because Brenda has to reconcile this family that chose her every day and wants to be her family and then her mom who loves her and who's incarcerated and trying to wrap her head around having these two separate entities and having them both exist in the same universe. So during this whole time, while Brenda's struggling, not getting to see her kids, not giving to live out her life purpose of being a mom, she's also having other issues. Because she's undocumented, she's not allowed or afforded to attend any of the schooling programs while incarcerated. Uh, she can't go to the GED, or excuse me, not GED, she can't go to any of the college programs. She can't do any of the technical training because she doesn't have the proper documentation. She's able to attend some Braille certification, um, and she works on her appeals. While Rosa was incarcerated, she went through multiple stages of appeals. Five judges in total reviewed her case, and she was granted new trials twice, although she received none. She received none because the district attorney or the attorney general appealed that process. In 2020, a judge went as far as to say, either give her a new trial or release her within four months. And this was due to ineffective counsel, due to her not being able to present adequate defense. And that has to do with not being able to supply an expert witness specifically dealing with pediatric airwaves. After that decision by the judge in 2020, in March of that year, the district attorney, Margaret Moore, assembled a conviction integrity unit. That's something we've talked about before. And as part of that unit, they reviewed Rosa's case. They considered a consensus report of a panel of pediatric airway experts of the top U.S. hospitals across the nation, all of which agreed it would be nearly impossible for Rosa to have forced baby Brian to swallow the paper towels. And while tragic, his death was an accident. This was enough for the DA to, to take back the appeal of her decision and determined that she had been wrongfully convicted. Unfortunately, the attorney general at the time disagreed, and he decided to push forward with the appeal, which can you help me wrap my mind around that, Dan? We've had other cases where the local prosecutor is the main player for the state, but on occasion, the attorney general oftentimes as a political ploy, will enter enter the case. And, and he certainly is, uh, I mean, he's like the, the attorney general supervises all of the prosecutors in the state. Yeah. And um, 
he can certainly intervene and uh, take over the case, I guess. And it sounds like that's what he did in even, Rose's case. Even when you have a panel of experts across all the top U.S. children's hospitals on pediatric airways saying there's no way this happened, you're still going to say there's some way it happened? I don't... <sighs> you do everything possible that they don't get a new trial. I wanted to interject here when you mentioned that she was where the courts granted her a new trial. Twice. It didn't happen. And we had a Jimmy Gardner. We had a, that's episode number one. Number one. Where the appellate court ordered a new trial. He didn't get it because the judge, the case would go back to the original jurisdiction. And the judge and the prosecutor there did not want to retry the case. So they didn't. I mean, Jimmy Gardner never got that, and neither did Rosa. Oh, God. Just made, and a, and a, a caveat to this, she says this is another thing that made parenting and her relationship with her kids so difficult because this happened two separate occasions. And in total, there was four judges that said she, at the very least, needed a new trial and was more than likely innocent. That happened on four different occasions. Very similar to Melissa. Four judges, four federal judges are saying this and she's telling her children this. And so her children are getting their hopes up thinking, oh, my mom's going to get out. This is going to be perfect. And then everything's crashed again. It's not just Rosa that's suffering the damage and the heartache of not getting out. It's her family. It's her kids. It's the life they lost with their mom. It, uh, oh, okay. Anyways, so... The attorney general believed that he had more knowledge than all the leading experts on pediatric airways and decided to pursue the appeal of the judge's decision. In January, January 27th to be exact, of last year, there was another hearing set where a pediatric airway expert testified that Brian accidentally choked, according to all the evidence presented. We're now in 2021? Yeah. That's like yesterday. Yeah. Well, we're 2022. So like a I year know, ago. Yes. I mean, well, yes. I have to keep in my mind because in my <laughs> mind, it's 2021. So yes. It's yesteryear. Yes. Year. yes. Um, that judge, Karen Sage, recommended her conviction be vacated. And she even went as far to say it is clear that she would not have been convicted for Bryant's murder had false and misleading testimony not been presented. And she allowed her to post bond. Now, this was different because not only did the judge feel that way, not only did the defense feel that way, the newly elected district attorney also agreed that Rosa had been wrongfully convicted. So, yay, Rosa's going to get released. Yes. Now, she's been down this road before. So she, uh, we had just talked about four other judges said that, you're, yeah, you're probably innocent. And she still sat in jail for 18 years. So she's not expecting to be immediately released. And all this, Pat, this last hearing in January... It occurred via Zoom, so she was on the Zoom call. Her pod at the facility she was located on heard the news that she was going to be uh, released on bond, and it just erupted in cheers for her because everybody knew she was innocent. Everybody knew her heart and how kind she was. So she gets back to her dorm that night, and she's sitting on her bed, and the corrections officer comes up to her and says, hey, you're leaving at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. There's an ICE detainer. Now, keep in mind, Rosa is there illegally. An ICE detainer is a detainer where ICE comes and picks you up 
uh, to deport you. And when her, she was actually represented by a wonderful woman with the Innocence Project named Vanessa Potkin. Uh, when they inquired about the ICE detainer, they were told that they that Rosa was going to be an expedited de- deportation. Now, I'm going to be a cynic here for a second, and this is no way fact-based, but if I had to put on my cynic hat and listen to the facts that I just heard about her, the judge saying that she's wrongfully convicted and she's going to be released, and then them immediately deporting her to Mexico, in my mind, I would think, hey, maybe they don't want to pay her what she deserves in compensation is what is going through my mind. I can be completely off base here, but that's what's going through my mind. Because she spent 18 years for a murder charge that didn't even occur. Because remember, it was not a murder crime. It was an accident. So... I shows up 6 a.m. the next morning. Her attorney, Vanessa, is on the phone with the Mexican consulate, with ICE detainer, trying to figure something out. This poor woman has lost the last almost two decades of her life due to a wrongful conviction, and now they're going to deport her back to a country she hasn't been in in 20 years. Um, fortunately, the consulate was able to intervene, and they did so saying, quotes, that they intervene when it is clear... that they always intervene when it is clear that they detect a humanitarian type case. So that's interesting. The juxtaposition between ICE saying she's going to be expeditely deported and then the consulate saying that it's a humanitarian case and then it being waived. Once her attorney through the Innocence Project found that out, she immediately rent a car, went to Waco and got her. Fortunately for Vanessa, excuse me, fortunately for Rosa, that very weekend just happened to be her daughter Brenda's wedding. So she was released the weekend. Get out of town. She was released the weekend before her wedding and was able to attend her daughter's wedding. She had missed out on so many firsts in her daughter's life, but was able to be present for the wedding. She was released on the weekend of her daughter's wedding. Yep. Wow. Yep. And a huge, I mean, it wasn't Vanessa Potkin with Innocence Project. It wasn't her job to go get her from Waco. I mean, she definitely went above and beyond to make sure Rosa got where she needed to be and was taken care of. Because keep in mind, she has nobody other than her two kids, one of which is 16 and living with a foster family, and one of which who's 19 and has a family of her own. I mean, she doesn't have anybody. All of her her mother and all of her siblings live in Mexico, so she's just out, you know? And we've talked about it before. Uh, when exonerees are released from prison, they're not afforded the same opportunity somebody is that's paroled. They're not given the resources or um, the f- financial compensations that someone is. Um, I can't remember what it is, but I think when you're released on parole, it's what, like a hundred dollars and a taxi ride or something like that. She, she gets nothing. She gets the clothes she came on in if they still have them maybe. So wonderful work that the innocence project does. So since this is a relatively new case, there's not a whole lot going on about what she's currently up to. I will say that Rosa suffers from stage four kidney disease. This was a big push in 2020 when the judge 
and when that judge said either give her a new trial in four months or let her go because COVID was so rampant and COVID was going through the prison systems like crazy and her family and her loved ones were terrified that if she were to contract COVID with her stage four kidney disease, that she wouldn't make it out. Fortunately, that was not the case. She was released. Um, she does need dialysis and she needs a kidney transplant, which thankfully the innocence project is helping her with that. Exoneration is not official yet. To be fully exonerated has to go to the Court of Criminal Appeals, who has to rule on the case to ratify it. So she's not fully exonerated, although she is released. Uh, During interviews that she says, the one thing she said is that she was terrified to go to sleep when she was released because she was just so sure she was going to wake up and it was a dream and it would all be over. So very similar to Melissa. And when I first read Melissa, the woman on death row in Texas's case, the headline kind of threw me off because it said she was convicted of a crime that never happened. And I'm like, well, what what does that mean? Um, And the same thing here with Rosa. What that means is that the crime didn't happen because it was an accident. 70% of women that were wrongfully convicted were exonerated based because the crimes never took place at all. Either the events were accidents, the deaths were suicides, or everything was fabricated. So that's what that means. That's why Rosa's crime never took place, because it wasn't a murder. It was an accident. This poor little baby boy put paper towels in his mouth. It wasn't Rosa forcing them into his mouth, so she was convicted of the crime that never happened. So very, very sad. Um, thankfully she's out, she's working on building relationships with her children very delicately because obviously she hasn't been in their life. She, before this, she'd only held her son for 15 minutes. He was only 16. So he was never able to have the contact visits like her daughter did. Um, hopefully she is able to find her place in society and able to make a path. She is only 38. So she's on the younger side. I pray and hope that she finds a way to make it like so many of the others we have. Do you have anything to add, Dad? Great story, Beth. Yeah. And you do such a, you've done such a thorough job with the uh, story that you covered everything, I think. I really really don't have any questions. It's, uh, yeah, you explained it in detail and... uh, it's, I don't know, it's Man, so sad. I, you, we just can't give Inner Innocence Project enough praise. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. They, like you mentioned, other beyond driving to Waco and picking her up, mm-hmm. that was a small deal compared to what they do, helping her with her health and her yeah. appointments. and. Um, well, she had to rent a car. Because she's, she's from out east, so she got there to pick her up, not knowing she was going to have an ice detainer, and then had to rent a car to go. I don't know. It's just the work that these people do, and even industries or organizations like that, like Centurion Ministries, the, the work that these organizations do is just amazing and wonderful and needs to be highlighted and supported for sure. Um, I will add that as part of the research for this case, I stumbled across a podcast called Unjust and Unsolved with Maggie Freeling. It is amazing. Um, She covers cases 
of wrongfully convicted individuals, but they have not yet been exonerated. And she goes about it by writing to the individuals. So she has um, an episode about Rosa Jimenez. And in the episode, it's actually a conversation between her and Rosa. And she has Rosa's attorney talk to. It's, it's wonderful. I highly recommend it. It's wonderfully done. Excellent, excellent material if you're interested. I think she has over 20 episodes, so more great resources out there about the information. And the name of the podcast again? Unjust and Unsolved with Thank Maggie you. Freeling. Well, I think that's it. I think that's it. Um, next week, we will be doing, well, it'll be two weeks. You'll hear the next episode. We are going to be doing a case that's a little bit different. It's going to have some conspiracy theories in it. It's going to be, it's going to be a chunk. We were hoping to do it this week. I just didn't have enough opportunity to do all of the research research that this case um, needs. So be prepared for that. But Will we be mentioning the name J. Edgar Hoover? We might. All right. We might, there might be raids, there might be undercover operations, there might be stings, there might be, it, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Is it true that he used to wear ladies' clothes? I don't know about that. <laughs> That's not what the episode's I think it about. Is. You'd know more about that than I would. What? <laughs> what? But, so it's going to be a little bit different. Um, yeah, so be prepared for that. Thank you for listening. Uh, again, if the Melissa Laceo case interests you, please go to innocenceproject.org, read about her story, sign the petition if that's something that you're into, um, spread the word. Go to YouTube. There's all kinds of uh, information about Melissa Laceo. Um, yeah. And thanks for listening. Yes, thank you. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at Cleared Pod on Instagram or Cleared Podcast on Facebook. Please send us any questions, concerns, comments, episode suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. Please rate and review, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Until next time, thank you. Assault City Sound Production.